I'd like for us this afternoon to look into Psalm 40. Actually, we're going to be considering verses 6 through 10 particularly, but I want to read the whole psalm. The 40th Psalm, which is attributed to David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my heart, in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they're more than can be numbered. And we have in verses 6 through 10 a particular messianic passage in this psalm. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore my heart faileth me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. It's interesting to me that Sometimes in a passage like this in Psalm 40 or in other prophets, places in Isaiah and other prophets, where it seems that there's a break from the particular thought in a passage 
And all of a sudden, a messianic promise or something that will be fulfilled in Christ in a very specific way will be inserted. It'll be there just as if it shows up. And uh, if it breaks, like breaking into a passage. And will give an express prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, seeming to bypass the instrument and his particular experience, because in divine inspiration, God does not ignore the experiences of the writers. He makes use of them. And we still have, of course, divine inspiration. God, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. It is the product of his Holy Spirit through men. And yet there are those times when the experience of the writer seems to be completely bypassed. And a particular prophecy will come forth that is messianic in nature. You find it in various places. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, etc. <clears throat> You'll find various prophecies that are given in various contexts. That, that's the case here. And in verses 6 through 10, these verses we know and we learn from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, they directly apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are distinctly messianic in nature. So that we have here, as it were, uh, the Son of God speaking to the Father. The Son talking to the Father. And uh, as is in Hebrews 10, 5, written concerning this, when he cometh into the world, when he comes into the world and he speaks to the Father. And what we find here is something very precious and very important. And that is the willingness of our Lord to assume a human body. He's sent by the Father. He is the gift of the Father, the most wondrous gift ever given. And he also says, I come. It was an act of his own will. It was his own volition to come into the world. His coming into the world like his death was in obedience to his Father. And to that purpose of the Father. So he's willing to assume a human body. And he's willing to offer himself for the sins of his people. He is willing by himself to accomplish the whole work of redemption in himself. It's really then quite an amazing passage. It's one we do well to, re to remove our shoes before spiritually. And bow in our hearts in awe and reverence before it as we have the word of God. Even our Lord speaking prophetically through David by his spirit nine centuries before the coming of our Lord. God's salvation is indeed, as described in the book of Hebrews, a so great salvation. There's nothing in this world that could compare to it. So great salvation. What it took to rescue fallen sinners. What it took to bring us to God. Who were separated from him 
by sin is the most stupendous work that's ever been undertaken. And it could, could be undertaken and accomplished and applied only by one, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And only as he was perfect in his willingness to come and to accomplish that work, we should, without fail, without break, bless his name. And in believing, often praise him with unceasing praise. We have the whole reason here, really, why the called of Jesus Christ are saved. And so may God prosper the consideration of this passage from his holy word. Particularly, for a little while, I want to consider the personal willingness of the Son of God to the work of redemption. We read in this psalm, 40 verses 6 through 8 sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire mine ears hast thou opened burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required then said I lo I come in the volume of the book it is written of me I delight to do thy will O my God okay, thy law is within my heart. The Son of God came in perfect willingness to rescue sinners, fulfilling the purpose of the Father. In the Trinity, God the Father is presented as the one who purposes. He is the decreeing member of the Trinity. It is the Son who accomplishes the purpose of of the Father. He brings to pass everything the Father has purposed. The Holy Spirit is He who applies that purpose. He's the one who brings salvation. That kind of a, a pithy little statement that was made by William Hendrickson, but he, he put it this way. The Father thought it. The Son bought it. The Spirit wrought it. The work of God, triune. And that work in salvation. And the Son of God comes willingly to accomplish the purpose of the Father. The incarnation of God, the Son, in human flesh, was anticipated from eternity. Peter wrote about it when he said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That word manifest means that God is making himself known. He's coming into our human experience. He's within the reach of our faith, as it were, we might say. This purpose in coming proceeded from the eternal decree. It involved the wondrous purpose of God to save many through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ out of Adam's fallen race in Hebrews chapter 2, 
verses 14 and 15, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. All was based upon the perfect willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect submission to his Father to come into the world, to take human nature into union with his eternal deity. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. The delight in doing the will of the Father. The delight in doing the will of the Father, though it would be the most costly thing ever anybody ever undertook personally. The perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience in assuming a human body was absolutely necessary in order to make the one eternal sacrifice for sin that alone puts sin away, and that forever, that alone effects redemption, that alone brings the rebel to surrender in faith to the living God in Christ and reconciles to him. Then, with full humanity, he wasn't part God and part man. He was God, a very God. He was God, essentially, completely, and he was man, not partly man. He was man with all our human sympathies and feelings and needs, completely, excepting he didn't have sin. He came in all points just like we do. So with full humanity and having a natural dread of pain, he didn't look forward to the cross, did he? I mean, we see that in Scripture. Now is my soul troubled. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. He had the natural dread of pain, of suffering, and of death and yet was perfectly willing to accomplish the purpose of the Father, to offer himself as a self-sacrifice to God the Father. We know that all of the sacrifices of the law, all of them, the whole sacrificial system of the old covenant and that combined could not remove a single sin, actually. They couldn't take away sin. Not all the sacrifices that were sacrificed. And I, I read, if you read about even when the temple was constructed and Solomon made sacrifices, it's almost innumerable, the number of sacrifices that were made when the temple was constructed, not a one of them could take away sin. Not a one of them. The Old Covenant Law with its sacrificial system is called in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 a shadow of good things to come. That is everything that went before 
projected a shadow of what was to come, as if that was the, the darker days, but yet the sun shone and like it does on the moon, and the shadow was there. And the shadows were that which was in the old covenant and their sacrifices for sin. The substance would come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The shadows would pass away. All those ordinances and all those sacrifices of the old covenant, they only pointed forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, by one sacrifice hath he sanctified forever them that are called. When the Son, S-U-N, when the Son of Righteousness appears, the shadows then flee away. They have that in Colossians chapter 2, if you want to look there, and, and verses 13 through 17. A tremendous passage of Scripture. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 17. And you being dead in your sins and the circum uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. <laughs> that is, he canceled our debt, our whole debt to the law. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He crushes the head of the serpent and takes power over all demonic powers. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days there in italicized, not in the Greek which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The old covenant contained the shadows. The new covenant, the substance, Christ, and all that he accomplished by redemption. And uh, <clears throat> this is brought out in the psalm here, where uh, we read in Psalm uh, chapter 40, verse uh, six, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Uh, or it could mean there, digged, if you please. And the digging of the ears would seem to speak of a channel directly to the heart. And the whole soul then bent to the hearing and the doing of the word of God. It's as much a matter of obedience to hear to listen attentively to the Word of God as it is then to perform it. Both things are absolutely necessary. It is sinful to let the mind and heart be distracted from the things of God. That's not completely, uh, properly understood, I think, in our day. We're to give as much attentiveness to the Word of God as then the performing of it. Of course, we're not going to perform it if we don't have it in our heart. So this seems to speak of a panel, a, a channel that's directly to the heart. <clears throat> and 
And, of course, it's a perfect willingness of Christ uh, to perform the will of the Father as difficult, as hard as that was. So, in Isaiah, for instance, same thing, chapter 50, and in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, and in verses 5 and 6, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters. That was an act of obedience on the part of Christ. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. He was accomplishing God's will. He heard the Father. There was a perfect communication between the Father and the Son. He was not moved or distracted by anything, any dread. And dread was there. He perfectly obeyed the Father first in hearing perfectly the Father, knowing perfectly the will of the Father, and then accomplishing the will of the Father. No doubt, he did that in absolute perfection. We know, of course, when he comes down close, a few hours from the cross, after he has been instructing his own apostles concerning his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then he does not teach them everything. There are other things they cannot learn until after he has risen from the dead and sends forth the Holy Spirit. But he says, I will not talk much with you anymore, he says, in essence, in John chapter 14. He said, The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. The taking of the cross was the command of the Father to the Son. The Son takes the cross without any question and perfectly does so. The greatest suffering ever undertaken. John mentioned in Sunday school, those hours on the cross are comparable to the sinner spending an eternity in hell. We can't think of how horrendous the suffering of Christ was on the cross. <clears throat> and he secures his own redeemed, the sheep given to him for all eternity. <clears throat> And to make no mistake, but that this is speaking of Christ's obedience in his full humanity is in Hebrews chapter 10, 5, where it is written, A body hast thou prepared me. A body hast thou prepared me. So, the enormity of sin required such an infinite price for redemption, and it required a perfect, willing sacrifice. What a horrendous thing to turn from God, us, to turn from God, our Creator. He is the reason for our existence. He's the reason we can draw breath. He is the reason we can think a single thought. 
He did nothing toward us but good. Everything was good. In the garden, the adversary, yeah, he questioned God's word, but he did more than that. He questioned God's goodness. He was saying to our first parents, oh, God's withholding something from you that you would really find to be good. And, of course, Eve looks and she sees that which is to be pleasant to the sight and desired to be taken in and eaten of. Finds nothing in that itself wrong and it looks good and beautiful. That's the way the adversary taunts and attempts. He questions the goodness of God. You ever have the question of the goodness of God and what he does brought to you? That comes from the adversary. That comes from the enemy of souls. And we owe everything to our creator. He doesn't owe us a single day. He does not owe us a single hour. All is from him. He owns everything. It all belongs to him, right? Everything. He can do exactly what he will with his own, and he does. He's the potter. He can form the clay exactly as he wants it to be, whether for good or ill. It's all in his sovereign hands. He's sovereign over all things. And in creation, he created us for communion with himself. For communion with the living God. And what a price was required of his justice. And yet provided by his love. To fully redeem us from all iniquity. To bring us to himself again. This one who came perfectly willing. It is written of him in Isaiah 55, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The price was paid for our redemption, for our cleansing, for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation to God. And it was paid in full. Nothing left to be paid. All at once, not in installments. The Lord paid the full price for our redemption. And secured when those words came from the cross, it is finished. It's completed. It's done. And our union to Christ is effected then by the work of the Holy Spirit who brings us to conviction for sin then shows us the way our sins have been put away by Christ and His blood and grants us the grace to trust Him only. To be able to come to say, I trust the ever-living one. His blood for me shall plead. Can we sing that one after my faith looks up to thee after the message. Then the major thing that's drawn in Hebrews 10 is the eternal efficacy of Christ's one eternal sacrifice that secures us from God. Drawn from this passage in Isaiah 40, but Hebrews chapter 10 
and verse 12, he offers one sacrifice for sins forever. And is seated at the right hand of God. All was done out of God's eternal purpose. God is a sovereign. He purposed all things before the world began. He decreed all things. And no one more powerful nor wiser nor does his will against God's will and prosper. And God will bring his will to pass. And he did so. This was secured by divine will. Certain of accomplishment. Willingly. Fulfilled. At the greatest cost. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Who says lo I come. In the volume of the book. It is written of me. Whatever was written comes from the book of God, the book of life, as it were, from the foundation of the world. When the Lord Jesus Christ is there, still the head, the head of the body, and all of his elect members are included. And he accomplishes for his chosen exactly what the Father has decreed. The scriptures then become the revealing of the purpose of God. And the Lord Jesus says, they are they which testify of me. So we have the certainty and assurance of the application of redemption in verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 40. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's verse 8. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindnesses and thy truth from the great congregation. <clears throat> the hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the hearing of faith, results in the understanding of the righteousness of God. I have not concealed that. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I have preached righteousness in the great a congregation that righteousness he declares that righteousness proclaimed by him so those who become part of the great congregation of the body of saints that's drawn from Jew and Gentile are those who are set apart by the call of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel when the gospel goes forth when it is proclaimed when by his spirit it is declared, he is speaking it. John was right in that this morning. It comes from him. He declares it. And this glorious gospel not only declares eternal forgiveness to all who hear and believe, it declares a perfect righteousness to those who hear and believe. That perfect righteousness is not the one worked by those who hear. It's the righteousness of the one who proclaims that righteousness. 
and it's his righteousness. But it's put to their account and that way imputed to them and is given to them. Not a righteousness then that comes by works, but a righteousness that comes through union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And what glory is involved in receiving the righteousness of Christ? A righteousness displayed in his life, and in his death, and yet accounted the objects of his redeeming grace as if they are the ones who performed it, but they didn't. It's his given to them. And it's Christ alone who is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. I like that in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, God is speaking of the terrible rulers that were over Israel and Judah and uh, speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in fulfillment of that promise that was given to David, the one who shall reign in righteousness, and his name, he says, is Jehovah, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. The righteousness God accepts is our union with him who is our righteousness. And it's all by God's grace, as in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. None of that is apart from him. And it is the great truth that he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In Romans chapter 10 verse 4. End there meaning he is the goal. He is the object of everything that went before. It comes. It's consummated in him. And the great declaration of God to all who hear the great preacher and the Lord Jesus Christ is the great preacher and who come to believe on him, to trust in him, the great declaration is that they are justified. That all sin has been removed. That a perfect righteousness is accounted theirs and that they are forever reconciled to God. And this is God's business, his grace his purpose and when he brings us to Christ it's his purpose to finish that oh we stumble along oh there may come times when we live in doubts we might even fear of our own salvation and there are those who cock sure of their salvation they shouldn't be and there are sometimes those who are struggling with their salvation because they, they've been so convicted of sin and they feel these things and they still battle with it and they would have a legitimate assurance, but these things sometimes prevent it. Those who are so sure of everything, they wonder if they've ever heard and come to know what they are by nature. And yet when God does save and he does call, salvation's in his hands. He is the one who begins the work of his own grace. And it is assured that he performs it until the day of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, I couldn't keep myself, could you? Apart from his grace, apart from his keeping, apart from his promise 
to lay hold of the promises of God and trust Him. When we're able to do that, that's the work of God's Spirit. That's Him enabling us to do that. All is of God. And all is for those who hear with what the Scriptures call the hearing of faith. I preached righteousness in the great congregation, lo, though I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. I have not hid. I have not concealed. I have declared. Prophetically expresses the Lord Jesus Christ. Who not only undertook the great work of redemption with delight. But he delights to save. He delights to send forth his gospel. And he delights to save. Are emotions attributed to God? They are in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. He joys over those who are saved. He sings. You imagine that? Over those who are saved. He rejoices. When one sinner comes to repentance, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. You ever notice that? It doesn't say the angels rejoice. There's rejoicing in their presence. God rejoices. What a wondrous thing. And rejoices in salvation. And it's Christ who makes known to us the great faithfulness and salvation of God. God is absolutely trustworthy and may be depended upon to save in every full sense of the word of salvation and the meaning of salvation all who are made to hear and lay hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Salvation is certain because of the willing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thy loving kindness and thy truth is the salvation of God bestowed in the knowledge of Christ. The truth and that it is by grace alone because of the sovereign and eternal love of God. Out of love God chose us as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1. Salvation is not a grudging thing with God. He doesn't say, all right, if you meet all these conditions, I'll save you, boy, boy, that's, you, you better be glad. No, he doesn't deal with us that way. Salvation is not grudging, it's abundant. He loves this salvation. He loves to save. He joys and rejoices over the saved. 
and his salvation is abundantly bestowed. God, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, were quickened together with Christ. Great mercy, great love, abundance. I love those descriptive words that come with mercy and with love in Scripture. This wondrous salvation and beholding by faith and trusting only the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified brings us to behold Him with adoring wonder. The religious world looks at a little babe this time of year. We look at an incarnate God. God who became incarnate to offer himself for the sins of his people. To redeem us to God. To bring us to him. And as we look only to him, and as we follow him, we learn to imitate his loving obedience, even though we could never imitate his act of it. The Lord Jesus Christ is not in a manger. He's not on the cross. He's ruling supremely at the right hand of the majesty on high. And when we're saved, when we're saved by God's grace, not in a, an emotional, sweet little thing that we consider with a baby, we come to a reigning Lord. We come to one who's sovereign over everything. We come to one we've heard loves us, cares for us. We've heard his voice in the gospel. We come to one who died but lives and lives eternally and is our sovereign Lord. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.